Good morning, and uh, as Rob says, welcome once again as we come to the Word of God. Um, I'm just going to pray briefly before we begin. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of, of gathering together as, as, as family, Father, as, as sons and daughters around your Word, which is your inspired uh, Word, Father. Lord, we, we ask that you would reveal to us this morning your heart for us. Lord, speak what you have to say this morning, regardless of what I have on my page, Father. We want to hear your voice. Lord, give us open hearts and open minds ready to receive. Amen. So, uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing our study of Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, looking at chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, but before we jump into the scripture, uh, we're going to take a look at, uh, it's a non-biblical parable, uh, but it is one of my favorites. Uh, I speak, of course, of the parable of the Lion King. Uh, yes, that is right. We are going to have a, a quick, watch a quick ex excerpt, excerpt. Uh, from an absolute classic and one of my favorite Disney movies, The Lion King. So, Keith, if you could... There we go. So, some of you will be wondering what on earth that was just about. Others will be saying, don't stop it, it was just getting good. Uh, but bear with me, we'll come back to it. Trust me, it will all become clear in time. So, getting back to this morning's text... Um, so far, in the first book of Timothy, Paul has spoken about false teaching, uh, the need for order, and how the church is to conduct itself, the roles of elders and deacons and, and people serving in the church. Paul has delivered loads of deeply practical instruction to help Timothy to maintain order and orthodoxy, which means right thinking, in the community of believers under his care in Ephesus. And they needed it. Uh, I mean, don't we all? But, but they really did. Uh, the church at Ephesus was under attack from false teachers, uh, heretical doctrines, pride, inappropriate behaviors and clothing being worn uh, during meetings, uh, an unclear structure and understanding of church leadership. Paul, in these first three chapters, has been dealing with these issues uh, systematically. Um, but here at verse 14 to 16, we really reach what I think is the heart of this letter. I'm reading from the, the new, uh, new, the NLT. Um, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. So now if we think back to that clip I played from The Lion King, let's imagine for a moment that the wise old monkey Rafiki is Paul. Uh, Simba is the young church at Ephesus, and Mufasa is the father himself. So let's run through the parable of the Lion King. So Simba comes to Rafiki asking, did you know my father? And Rafiki quips, correction, I know your father. Best line in the movie. Um, and I can just imagine this same conversation happening between Paul and the newly planted church. 
You knew Jesus. Correction, I know Jesus, says Paul. See, Paul establishes this church on the basis that although he never met Jesus before his crucifixion, he knows Jesus. And what's more, he's alive. And he proceeds to take them to him, to show them Christ. So Rafiki then proceeds to lead Simba through the jungle, this new and confusing territory for Simba who struggles to keep up as he attempts to follow Rafiki, who's traversing through this familiar ground with the grace and poise of someone who is very much at home in that environment. Similarly, the early church is attempting to follow Paul and Timothy's teaching, uh, but in this new and unfamiliar ground, they have been getting caught in every trap and every pitfall. Uh, just getting caught in the traps and pitfalls that Paul's been writing about in this, the first part of this letter. Only instead of vines and branches, they were harassed by Gnosticism, legalism, false teaching, pride, uh, and a lack of understanding about the importance of godly character in those who lead and serve in the body. So then, just as Simba begins to get into his stride and adjust to this new terrain, he comes into a clearing and Rafiki, stop, stops him abruptly and tells him to look for his father in the reflecting pool. Simba comes down slowly, peering over the edge, and is frustrated by the fact that he sees only himself. Simba begins to think that Rafiki may be not so wise after all, but perseveres when told to look harder. The church in Ephesus was also looking for Christ, and hopefully the same is true for us here today. But somewhere along the way, they became distracted and tainted by the culture that surrounded them. They had forgotten who they were. And if they looked into that metaphorical reflection pool, they may well have seen their own reflection and their own reflection only. What about us? If we hold our lives, if we hold our church up to a mirror, what will we see? Sadly, it's far too easy and altogether too common for us to get so caught up in looking like a good church that we forget that a good church is supposed to look like Christ. The Ephesians were some of the first to fall into that trap of slipping into churchianity instead of Christianity, to get so caught up in how they looked as a church that they forgot their true identity. So here, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is reminding this church, and also us as the wider church, who we are. Reminding us that he lives in you. And just like Mufasa in our little video, Paul reminds the church that they are more than what they had become. That they are God's sons and daughters. And they, they needed to remember who they are. It's a really powerful moment in that movie. 
You see, Simba had been deceived by his uncle, his evil uncle Scar, and as a result of that deceit, Simba had been robbed of his true identity as king and his position and was banished to live an unfruitful life in the wilderness. Meanwhile, the world he left behind at Pride Rock lay vulnerable and open to the influence of his deceitful uncle. But here in this powerful scene, Simba, sorry, Mufasa reminds him of his true identity. And in doing so, Simba is transformed and empowered to return home and restore order to his kingdom. Likewise, here in these last few verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul switches from the how to the who. He moves from instructing the church on how to function to reminding them of their collective identity and why the way they live and conduct themselves is so significant. And by reminding them of their true identity as the gathered community of God, they are empowered to move forward into godliness. And as we mine the scriptures this morning, I am hopeful that we too will be empowered to move forward in godliness. As I say, I read the scripture from the NLT this morning. And the subtitle for this short section, it's only three verses long, is The Truths of Our Faith. And in my opinion, that is a great title. Because these three short verses contain three great truths for and about the church. That's us. Number one, the church is a household, a family unit. More than that, we are the household of the living God. Number two, the church is a pillar, or some translations may say a buttress of truth. And then number three, the great mystery of our faith. Again, some translations may call it the mystery of godliness, and I like that. So let's go through these three great truths. Number one, the church is a household. Paul describes the church as being in the household of God. So what are the the characteristics of a household? Well, a household is submitted to the authority of its head. They are bound by common parenthood. It's not something that we get to choose or opt out of if our brothers and sisters are being difficult or messy. Believe me, I thought about it as as a child, (laughs) but it just wasn't an option. Uh, I'm sure my brothers and sisters did as well. That's not a dig at them. I was just as much of a pain, probably more. Uh, Households are committed to each other. They are loving. They are supportive. They are encouraging. And there is a sacrificial element to a family relationship. See, I have a brother and sister, and let me tell you, there were many points in my life where one or both of them uh, upset me or even angered me. And I promise you, as I've said, the same is true in the other direction. 
Uh, I can remember one particular occasion where uh, I was being a very bad winner. Uh, we were playing Monopoly, and <laughs> for a good solid 10 minutes, I was, I've never been good at board games, so I was relishing the opportunity to rub it in my brother's face. So I was there with my paper money going, way! And uh, to be fair, he was, he was more patient than, than, than I probably would have been. In. And it just got to breaking point, and he just dropped to one knee, hit me in the soft place. And that was, I can tell you now, it wasn't fun. Um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes being in a household means we have to bear with, with one another in our weaknesses and in our failings too. You know, being in the same household and united in our parenthood means that we are committed to each other, even when we are difficult to be around, uh, even when we feel wounded by one another or when we fail to love each other well. In the natural sense, families are bound by shared blood. To love and to serve one another, to care for one another and to honour our parents. But rather than being bound by the blood in our bodies, as the household of God, we are much more profoundly bound to one another by the blood on our doorposts. The blood of Christ that covers us and washes us clean, even in our brokenness, even in our sin, even in our thoughtlessness, even in our failings. See, how we choose to conduct ourselves as a church family goes far beyond good organisation. It goes far beyond good behaviour. It goes beyond making the church a nice orderly place to be. It even goes beyond our individual flourishing. As the household of the living God, our conduct testifies to those who are around us. And when we act with integrity, when we choose forgiveness and release our hurt to God instead of lashing out, when we bear with those who are weaker in the faith or extend grace to those who fall short, if we choose joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control, not only will we grow more into the image of Christ and therefore be more fulfilled because we were made to be that way, but we will also be bringing glory to our Heavenly Father. And he is worthy. Oh man, he is worthy. But don't mishear me. Families don't simply bear with one another in difficulties. They actively love and seek to bless each other. They cry together. They laugh together. They celebrate together. They grow together into the likeness of their parents. Are you maturing, brothers and sisters? Are we, the church, becoming more like our heavenly father? Because that is the father's plan for his children. That is God's plan for you. That is God's plan for the Ephesian church. That was his plan for them. And it is his plan for Freedom Church and the wider church. So church is family. We are part of the household of God. The church is the pillar or buttress 
the foundation of the truth. Now this is a strange image, but what is significant about the imagery of a pillar, I wonder? Well, first off, and this is just one man's opinion, but I think pillars are actually quite beautiful. Um, the, and I, I guess I can't be alone, uh, because one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis, which was actually also in Ephesus. Um, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was known the world over for its pillars. But this imagery goes far beyond that. Although I dare say a church operating in the fullness of God's will would be more beautiful and more wondrous than anything our eyes have ever seen. So a pillar is elegant, not simply because of its beauty, but because of its functionality. You see, a a pillar isn't just a decorative interior design decision. Um, It's of structural significance. Without it, the foundations wouldn't fail, but the house built on top would be unstable um, and would likely fall, causing damage to those inside it. You see, a pillar is the connection between the security of a solid foundation and the covering of the roof. Not just that, pillars are visually very prominent uh, and traditionally pillars would be a place where notices would be put up. Uh, in, in many marketplaces they would put a pillar in the centre and that's where all the notices would go up because that drew people's eye. It was functional, it was beautiful, but it also was a place where news was declared. So in this metaphor, Paul is saying that the church should be a thing of beauty, emulating Christ. It should be standing on a firm foundation, lifting the truth. And by doing so, it overtly declares the gospel for all to see through its corporate testimony. On the flip side, if if we as the church of God fail to stand for the truth of the gospel and show evidence of it at work in the way we interact with each other and with the world around us, then what message are we sending? See, if the gospel we claim does not lead to our sanctification, if it doesn't lead to our lives being changed and growing and becoming more mature as disciples and emulators of Christ, well then what value does this gospel offer to those who so desperately need it? So does Paul mean to say that the gospel needs our support or it will fail? Um, Well, Augustine once said, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose and it will defend itself. And there's a lot in this statement. You know, the truth will stand as true regardless of whether it is believed or whether it is demonstrated. Three plus three will always make six, even if you believe it makes seven or 14 or two. Three plus three will always be six. The waves of falsehood, no matter how large or compelling or intimidating they may seem, will always break 
on the rocks of truth. The truth will not cease to be true if we choose not to defend it. The gospel will not stop being true if our lives don't demonstrate it. But the point to remember here is this. A truth that is not lived is undermined. I'll say that again because it's important. Truth that is not lived, that isn't demonstrated, that isn't walked out, is undermined. So when the word instructs us to do everything as unto the Lord, there are real implications. As the church of God, there are real real implications for us if we fail to demonstrate the truth, to declare the truth as we are directed to. See, one one of the favorite tactics of, of the enemy, of Satan, starting at Eden to eternity, is, is to undermine the truth, to try and undermine the truth of God. And it is our job, when the question comes from the deceiver, did God really say yes? We will refute him, we will repel him with the truth. Just as Jesus did when he was being tempted in the wilderness. See, we live in a unique time in human history, uh, not because of COVID. Um, actually, I'm, I'm thinking more along the, ter- along the lines of the internet and of social media. See, all these platforms that, that are so embedded in, in modern life, they all have algorithms. And these algorithms are designed to, to keep you clicking, uh, to, to keep you watching. Um, and they know what they're doing. They're, they're very good at it. See, if, if I have a, a, a pet subject, you know, if I have a pet theological peeve and I, I click, let's, let's say I, w- I watch one uh, prosperity gospel video on YouTube. It's the moment I click that, because it's something I want to watch, YouTube goes, right, send him some more, send him some more, send him some more. And if I'm vulnerable to that falsehood, then, then I'm going to be overwhelmed You see, we live in a world where we get fed the truth that we want, not the truth that's true. (laughs) What we end up with is everyone stuck in their own little echo chamber, becoming more and more convinced of their own opinion, more and more radicalized. We We only have to look at politics to see that it's politics isn't about policies anymore. It's about people. And you only have to watch one conspiracy video to get 15, to get 20. And then before you know it, you've got radical left, radical right, and everyone going at everyone. A division. And the truth is nowhere to be seen. See, we're only shown content that affirms what we already believe to be true. And the enemy's weapons of warfare are more sophisticated now when it comes to attacking truth than they have been at any other time in history. And it is on us, as it says in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm against the enemy's schemes. 
like a pillar. We are to be steadfast, planted on a firm foundation and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. As we announce the glory of our Father by conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I said, the waves of falsehood, no matter how big, will always break on the rock of truth. And that rock of truth has a name and it's Jesus. So, point three, the third great truth in this text. The truth, which is the great mystery of the faith. Or some translations call it the great mystery of holiness. Paul is intentional in his use of the word mystery here. Um, Ephesus was a hotbed of what are known as mystery religions. um, Cults that claimed to have sacred and secret mysteries that could only be known by a privileged few within their ranks. Uh, Special knowledge exclusively for special people. (laughs) Uh, And the people who knew it held power over those who weren't special enough. But when Paul speaks of the the mystery of our faith, he's using the word mystery, not as special knowledge for special people. No, he's using it in a very different way to the way it would commonly be used and understood by these mystery religions. By mystery, Paul means that which God has revealed to all mankind that could not be known without the revelation of God. Paul then lays out this beautiful explanation of the great mystery of godliness through what is likely an early church creed or doxology. And we, the church, the household of God, the pillar of truth, have this beautiful mystery to carry to uphold, and to proclaim. First line, Christ was revealed in a human body. John 1.14 says, So the word became flesh and made his home among us. Jesus was the embodiment of truth. And we too need to embody the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, we either make a secret of that which God has revealed, or we undermine it with a testimony that robs the cross of its power. We cannot afford to do that, brothers and sisters. The full humanity of Christ and the fact that his actions as a human were of eternal and spiritual significance ran completely contrary to the common understanding at the time. The common idea then was that that there there was body and there was spirit and as long as we care for the spirit, what we do with our bodies is insignificant. Well, Jesus firmly dispelled that nonsense. The second line was that he was vindicated by spirit. Jesus lived so in step with the Holy Spirit that he never grieved him once. Vindicated means to be proved or judged to be true. So at the cross, when Jesus was judged in our place, 
The witness of the Holy Spirit was that he was the faultless, spotless lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist prophesied at his baptism. The next line says he was seen by angels. The witness of the righteousness of Christ was not only on earth, but in the heavens. His righteousness was seen by men and it was seen by angels. Not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. And this is true for us as well. Heaven is watching. He was announced to the nations. The spreading of the gospel, which is what we're talking about here, is not something for us to outsource to those who are gifted in evangelism. Well, yes, there is a gift of evangelism. But that doesn't mean only they are responsible for it. The Great Commission does not come with an asterisk that says only applicable to the gifted public speaker. It is the calling and responsibility of everyone in his church to announce the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. Evangelism comes in many forms, from preaching to crowds on the street to chatting to your close friend over a coffee. But it is at its most effective when the person doing it is a living expression of the transforming power they're talking about. Is that you? Is that me? Is that Freedom Church? Not always. But it should be. He was believed in throughout the world. Why was he believed? Um, I guess it was because there was literally no gap between his life and his message. He knew who he was and he embodied his identity perfectly. A truth unlived is a truth undermined. Remember that. And we are called to emulate the way Jesus lived. We are called to emulate emulate the way Jesus' life and his message were one and the same. And the last point in this doxology or creed was that he was taken to heaven in glory. If we dip back into 1 John 14, it says, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Wow. When we behold his glory, when we begin to grapple with the scale of his holiness... The outcome is a life transformed and a truth embodied and declared to a world who is desperate for that truth. 
And when, when the church is transformed, the world is changed. Now, it'd be really easy to look at this doxology and think, actually, this is an explanation of, of Jesus, um, or uh, this is an explanation of the mystery of God. But Paul calls it the mystery of our faith, or the one I prefer, the, the interpretation I prefer is the mystery of godliness. Or to put it another way, this is the way by which we, the church, become more holy. It's the wellspring from which all holiness is produced. We've got no godliness of our own. I certainly don't. Any and all godly character comes by the grace of God the Spirit as we bathe in the life-giving light of Jesus, incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. This is how we are sanctified, by living in these truths, by living in this truth and becoming a living embodiment of it, a household bound together with the blood of the lamb painted on its doorposts as a church that is a pillar declaring the good news of the gospel and supporting its claims through its own testimony, a pillar that shouts to those who are not and yet under the covering of Christ, come inside, come into the security and the shelter of God's covering, remember who you are church the spirit of God went from a burning bush to a tent in the desert to a temple in Jerusalem and at the death of Christ as death and sin were crushed by the victory of the cross the curtain in the temple was ripped top to bottom God decreed in no uncertain terms that he was done with dwelling in buildings he lives in you you are his people you are his children. You are his dwelling place. You are the window window through which this fallen world will approach and glimpse his glory. You are the ambassadors for the living God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Moses, of King David, the God who designed atoms and quarks and photons, yet sifts galaxies through his fingers like they were grains of sand and made all things from nothing with a word who so loved this world, who so loved you and me and his church, that he made his word flesh to cover our brokenness, to restore our identity and redeem us to himself. He lives in you. Paul is telling the Ephesian church in this letter to remember who you are. Not simply to give them more rules and regulations on how to behave, but to remind them, to remind us of our identity, our responsibility first to Christ and then to each other. And I say again to you this morning, remember who you are. He lives in you. The church is so much more than it has become. We are sons and daughters of the living God. The household of the living God. A pillar of truth that holds firm to and announces the truth and goodness of God. 
I say it again as I finish, my dear brothers and sisters, remember who you are. Amen.